0: Go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We are going through, uh, in theory, straight through the book of Philippians this summer. I made a mistake when I reached out to Jerry about preaching last week. I sent him the wrong text. (laughs) And uh, so we're actually going to go backwards. He preached 19, I think, through the end of chapter 2. I'm going to preach today 12 through 18. Uh, I found out that I sent him the wrong text after I was working on a sermon for the text that he preached uh, all week before I left for camp, because I needed to be a week ahead because of camp, and uh, then he turned in his sermon, I was like, this sounds a lot like uh, my text, and I looked, and I was like, oh, dang, here I am working all week on a sermon that he's going to preach, and and not the same sermon, but the text, so I had to scramble and go back and and prepare this one, Uh, but I was, actually, it was really cool, because I really enjoyed studying the text that he preached, and it was very edifying to me. So nothing was lost in that process. But we're going to jump back into verses 12 through 18. This passage comes immediately after um, Paul talks about the humility of Christ and how we're supposed to follow that example and, and uh, not consider ourselves more important, uh, but consider the needs of others. And then he gets into just some pure application. And so this, this sermon is going to be application-heavy, Uh, You know, every text is a little bit different. Some some texts don't really have any application. It just has teaching or doctrine. And then we have to bring in some application. But this one, Paul's just given straight application. And so that's what the sermon will look like today. Let's look at Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear brothers, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run Or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, would you just speak very clearly this morning into our lives? Where within this passage we need to grow perhaps repent of sin and god would you bring energy to our to our spiritual journeys right now god as we seek to follow you and seek to become more like you i pray that we would be energized in that that we would not grow cold that we would not grow weary but there would be a fervor in our spiritual lives as a result of your word working in us through the holy spirit god give us ears to hear hearts that are open And let us dive deep into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I got five things that I want to talk about from this passage. The first one is this: don't coast now, work out what God is working in you to accomplish. Don't coast now, work out what God is working in you to accomplish. The sermon's titled, Work Out Your Own Salvation. This is an interesting passage because, as evangelical Christians, we so emphasize the role of faith, and by trusting in Christ and our salvation. And that none of, none of our salvation is a result of our own works. And, and so this relationship between faith and works and everything gets tricky. And I love the way Paul, he doesn't try to clarify it. He just, he just simply states it. He says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed. Now remember, Paul's writing a letter to a church that he had helped plant. He's in prison. He's not sure if he's going to be released from prison or if he's going to be executed. Those are the two options that he's facing. Either I'm going to get out and be free, or I'm going to die for preaching the gospel. It says, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Work out your own salvation. Just pause on that phrase for a minute. Work out your own salvation, but it's Jesus who worked for my salvation, It's Jesus who saves me. What does Paul mean? He says, and then he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So you work because it is God who is working. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. These sound like two contrary things. I've got something I've got something to figure out. I've got something to work out and it's so serious I'm supposed to do it with fear and trembling and yet on the other hand God is working for his good purpose. How do those two things come together? This is Paul's way of, I think, prodding the Philippian believers. Don't coast. Don't become so focused on God's graciousness to provide for you this offer of salvation through the work of Christ that you just kind of sit back and say, okay, well, this is great. Jesus did it all. I guess I just kind of ride this thing out until I get to heaven. Paul says no. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working. The the two aren't necessarily supposed to to be in competition with one another. They're supposed to work together to accomplish what is God's good purpose. We work because he's working. And and in that sense, our, our work is multiplied in its results and in the fruit of it. My former pastor used the example one time of having power steering, and that stood out to me because, as Greg just mentioned earlier, I turned 40 on Friday, and, uh, which I'm very excited about, by the way. 30s were great. I felt like I was in my 30s for two decades uh, in a good way, I loved the thirties, but I think the forties are going to be even better uh, if you 're in your forties and you 're like that 's not the way it goes then don 't tell me don 't spoil my fun. just let me just live in this blissful ignorance of thinking the forties are going to be good um, anyhow i 'm old enough that when i when I turned sixteen and I was shopping for a car, one of the cars that uh, I was looking at uh, didn't have power steering. It was a, you know, I was looking at a used vehicle, and I remember like, dang, this thing's crazy, you know, like turning the wheel without power steering. And now we have vehicles with power steering where you could literally, like with one finger, turn the car. And so the, the amount of effort that you're putting in versus the, uh, versus the outcome that is being produced is is, is increased by the power steering, by the mechanics of that engine. Well, our work as Christians is much more fruitful then the effort, let's say, justifies. Because when we work, we enter into the work that God is doing. And He comes through the Holy Spirit, He, he works out as we work. They go together. I'm not preaching salvation by works, I'm preaching faith without works is dead. There's a difference. And it's important as Christians that we know the difference, that we never get confused and think that we're somehow contributing to our salvation, that we're somehow justifying Jesus is saving us, that we're some, somehow you know, pr- producing something other than by the grace of God we are entering into the work that he's doing. We are saved. We are saved by grace through faith, not saved by our works. However, when we are saved, we now work. Not to maintain our salvation, but to demonstrate our salvation. I like what James 2 says. Some people get uncomfortable with this passage. I love this passage. James 2, 14 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? I mean, Theologically, the answer is yes, but no, because does he really have faith? That's the question that that arises. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good, even the demons believe and they shudder. Verse 20, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works? This is hilarious because we always use Abraham as the example of being justified by faith. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab, the prostitute, also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by, di- by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. See, it's not, and this is just James's clever way of saying it, it's, not, it's not the works that justify us. It's, it's that faith without works probably isn't real faith. Faith should produce works. Faith should move us into action. And so I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna, just as Paul is doing in this letter, I wanna prod us. I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna encourage you, don't coast. Don't rest on the work that has already been completed by Jesus, but enter into the work that he's doing now in this world. Work out what God is working in you to accomplish. Show me you have faith. By being active in it. Show me you have faith by, by, by responding to the gospel, by working out your salvation. Don't coast. It's a dangerous thing for Christians to coast. It's a dangerous thing because we're in a battle. And sometimes when we coast, we let our spiritual guard down. And, and, and we, we can take a beating that, that we didn't necessarily need to take. And we lose opportunities to to be a light and to share the gospel and to be a witness. Don't coast, but work out what God is working in you to accomplish. All right, that's number one. Number two is this. Strive to be blameless and pure like children of God ought to be. Strive to be blameless and pure like children of God ought to be. This verse made me mad. (laughs) When I was looking at this passage, I got all excited about those first couple of verses, 12 and 13. I'm like, yeah, that's good stuff. That's going to preach. And then I get to 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. I was like, oh. So that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless. Man, when I think of, like, doing good and being good as a Christian and, and serving the Lord, uh, you know, I measure, I measure how well I'm doing with the macro sins. You know, like, I didn't rob any banks. I'm not dealing drugs. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing any of this crazy stuff. And, and, and then, but, but Paul can go from, from that to way down in your business real quick. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. What kind of standard is that? (laughs) Do everything without grumbling and arguing. So that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless. But I was thinking about this as I reflected on why grumbling and arguing? Why is that such a big deal? Like that seems like such a small thing, right? But as I thought about it, in, in, in connection with what's said in verse 15, don't grumble and argue so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless. To be labeled as children of God, first of all, raises the bar really high. I mean, we're, we're not, you know, we just like to say things like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace and stuff, and that's true and that's good, I say that, I, I'm, not, I'm not putting that down. But if, if we see ourselves as just some sloppy, messy sinner who's just stumbling to heaven by grace, we, we don't see ourselves biblically because God calls us his children. And in his household, the standard is different than the standard that you and I naturally set for ourselves. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing because you're his children and the reason that children oftentimes not always oftentimes the reason that children grumble is because they don't trust what their dad is doing we grumble against our father in a you know our biological upbringing we grumble against our father because we don't understand what he's doing and we don't trust what he's doing why can't i stay up all night why can't I go out with my friends until 2 in the morning? Why can't I do this and why can't I do that? We grumble because we don't trust that, he is a, that our father is loving us by setting boundaries. And oftentimes our, our fathers growing up made us do things that we didn't want to do that he could see were for our good. You, do, you just need to learn responsibility as you grow up. And so, so I was always grumbling against my dad. Because I didn't trust his plan. I didn't trust his process. And then you grow up and you look back and you're like, man, that wasn't unreasonable. That was, I can see why he wanted me to do those things. Grumbling says, I don't trust you. And that's not something we want to communicate to God, our Father. We don't want to say to him, hey, I'm not cool with this situation. And I don't trust what you're doing. Do we? Do everything without grumbling and arguing. When we go on mission trips, I've been doing this, you know, for years going back to my, my previous church. Um, I did it week one of, of the Johnny and Friends camp back in June. I shared this with some of the guys and we had some fun with it. One of the things we do when we go on mission trips is we adopt this saying that uh, just we just say, it's just the way I like it. And then we use that every time we get uncomfortable and every time we're in a circle and every time something is not the way we like it, we just force ourselves with oftentimes with some sarcasm and some humor say, it's just the way I like it. So we were, we were setting up for week one and we got 150 people coming to camp. This is back in June and it is just stupid hot. I mean, we're, we're the very Southern tip of Ohio uh, down near Kentucky and it's just blazing hot. And the air conditioning in the facility that we're using isn't working. And the temperature literally on the thermostat goes up to 90 degrees, and there's no air moving, and it was just, you just, just sweat pouring out of you. And, and we're me and a couple other guys were setting up this stage. There's like this platform thing that you have to set up. And this thing's heavy as can be, and, and we're having to move it around and everything. We're just sweating like crazy. And, and this came to my mind, and I told one of the guys, I was like, here's what we do when we're on mission trips, you know, and he loved it. He jumped on that, and and he kept saying throughout the week and even week two, he's like, just the way I like it. It's just the way I like it. You know, we do that on mission trips, and we try to have that attitude, but then I come home, and I'm like, man, I I don't even try to live up to this standard. I don't even make the effort to do everything without grumbling and arguing. That's why this verse hit me. That's why I was so uncomfortable. I'm like, i got to preach this. I'm not even thinking about applying this. So it's helpful just to reflect on why is that so important to God? Of all the things that we could be doing wrong, why, is he, why, is, why does he care about a little bit of grumbling, a little bit of arguing? And then I read that next verse, because we're children of God. We're children of God. And we need to trust him. We need to believe that he's good in every circumstance, in every situation. And grumbling says, I don't trust you. Grumbling says, I want to do this my way. Grumbling says, I think I have a better plan. So we're called to strive. Strive to be blameless and pure. Work at this. Work out your salvation. We're talking about working. Work it out. How to, remember, this, is in this, this is in the context of Paul saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he, then he goes on to explain what he means by that. Do everything without, argue, without grumbling and arguing. Strive to be blameless and pure like children of God ought to be. That's number two. Number three is this. Shine bright in this dark generation by holding firm to the word of life. Shine bright in this dark generation by holding firm to the word of life. How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, we, we wage war against grumbling and arguing. And we fight to have a, uh, to have a trusting attitude we seek to be blameless and pure as children of God ought to be. But we also shine bright in this dark generation. It says in the second part of verse 15, in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. By how, how do we shine bright in this world? By holding firm. Refusing to let go. This, you're holding firm to the word of life and the world is doing everything it can to pry your grip off of that word of life. Is it not? Is the world not complete? I mean, this whole movement of deconstruction and the the whole movement of of, of, towards secularism in our society, the world is, I mean, the, the world is just got a hold of your grip and is just screaming let go let go you, you don't have to hold to that we're free We, we, we we're going to reinvent humanity we're going to reinvent the way the world operates you shine bright simply by holding firm and refusing to let go and you know what's interesting about the what, what, what Paul says here, the illustration he uses, you shine, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Here in the metropolis of Lower Borough, with all of the the um, successful economic boom that is happening and, and, and all of this progress that we see here, you know, we don't often get to see the stars through all of the bright lights of Lower Borough, but you get outside, you get outside of, of unnatural light, of man-made light, and you go out and you look up and you see the stars shining bright because everything else is dark. You know the stars are there all day, right? You just don't see them during the day because there's enough light to, to make them invisible to us. It's only when the world turns dark at night that the, shines, that the, the, the stars shine brightly. When the world is saturated with Christian gospel light, our light doesn't seem all that bright and we're not as needed. It's when the world goes dark that we are needed the most. The world needs you to shine bright by holding firm to the word of life now more than ever before. In a crooked and perverted generation... Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago about his generation, and it was a crooked and perverted generation. And the world sort of always has been, but we've seen here in America, and in our immediate context, we've seen a trending towards more crookedness and more perversion than, let's say, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Our society is not evolving in a positive way. Our society is not becoming more like Christ. Our society is getting darker and darker and darker. And as it gets darker, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to shine bright like stars by holding firm to the word of life. Don't let go. Don't let go of this gospel. Don't let go of this message It's called the word of life because it gives life. It's called the word of life because it has the ability to take dead souls and to bring us to life and to give us eternal life. That is what the world needs. If you had in your hand the cure for some terrible disease like cancer and people were trying to get it out of your hands so that they could destroy it, would you let go? No. You would hold firm, and you would fight to hold on to that, knowing the good that it has the potential to do in the world. Well, you are holding on to the word of life that has greater potential than any medicine for any disease. You have the word of life that has the ability to save souls for eternity. You can't let go. You can't give up. You can't give in. You must hold firm. That's what stars do. They shine brightest in the darkness. Last week it, it came, well, it was just, I think it was Thursday night. Um, we're coming to the end. Camp ends Friday at noon. So all of the leaders go on a, a hayride together. It's a, it's a tradition every year. Thursday night's hayride night where the leadership team goes on a hayride together. And we go up on the top of this hill. We're at, we're at a Ohio State Park. It's out kind of in the middle of nowhere. And um, it's this, this lodge that sits kind of up on a hill um, in, in the, the mountains of, of Appalachia, I guess, is, is, is where it's at. And um, we go up on top of this hill where all you see is the sky, and the moon was probably like a quarter moon that night. And so you just saw so many stars. And there was a girl on our leadership team who's blind, mostly blind, as most blind people are. Um, and she can see some things, but she said she's never seen the stars. She's never seen a star. And we're on this hayride, and in the darkness that was surrounding us, she looked up and she said, I can see a star. You can't get that, you can't get that type of contrast without the world being dark. The good news is, is that the worse the world gets, the brighter we shine. But we've got to hold firm. We can't let go, we can't compromise, we can't give in. Number four, honor those who have poured into you by proving to be a worthy and fruitful investment. I try when I'm writing sermon points, I try to make them concise and you know, I, I write the points that I, that I want to make after I study the passage and then I, I just can't kind of keep rewriting them and getting them as concise as, as I could but because of the way things happen where I was working on the wrong sermon all week and only had a limited amount of time, I know these are wordy I know they're wordy um, so I guess I'm just feeling insecure so I wanted to say that but I think they're I think they're important honor those who've poured into you by proving to be a worthy and fruitful investment Paul says in, in the second half of verse 16 after instructing them to hold hold firm to the word of life then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing Paul has given his whole life he's given his whole life since becoming a christian to building the church to making disciples he has poured himself into other people spiritually encouraging them and and building them up in the faith and he's hoping to see some fruit you know what it's like to work hard on something and it just not produced the results that you were hoping for in the end. It just didn't turn out well or, or things just didn't go well. Well, Paul, here he's, he's writing in prison. He's facing the prospect of death and he's, 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 he's wondering if these Philippian believers, this church that he planted, is, is going to continue on. Are they going to hold firm? Are they going to give up? Or What are they going to do? And he wants to, he wants to see some return on his investment. Not selfishly, but, but in, a, in a kingdom way. He wants to know that they're going to, to prove to be a worthy and fruitful an investment. He says, then I can boast in the day of Christ. If they do this, if they follow through, if they work out their own salvation, if they do what he can't do for them, then he's going to stand before Christ one day and he's going to realize it was worth it. I didn't run or labor for nothing. That was, that was worth every bit of anguish and grief. And if, if you remember, I know we've talked about it a couple of times, if you remember back to how the church in, in Philippi started, man, Paul paid a price to plant this church. He went through it. And here he is now. He's he's in, he's in prison um, far away from them now, not as a result of what he did there, but he's in prison uh, for preaching the gospel, was it worth it? Well, if they if they grow to maturity in Christ, if they hold firm, if they work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, if they strive to be blameless and pure, and they they, they grow in doing everything without grumbling and, and arguing and grow in their relationship as children with God, yes, it was worth it and, and he'll stand before God one day having done a good work and he'll get to boast. Not pridefully or selfishly, but boast in Christ. Paul explains that other places. So, what's our response to this? Honor those who've poured into you by proving to be a worthy and fruitful investment. When I left Harvest, the church that I was at for uh, sixteen years, uh, I just I, I I remember this this feeling of wanting to make proud all of the men and women who had poured into me and invested in me spiritually and encouraged me and who had given me the opportunities to grow in ministry. And, and I remember just getting to say, say to the elders and to some of the other folks there, I just, I want to go, go make you proud. I want to go make you proud. I want to be a worthy and fruitful investment. I've had over the years, incredible people give of their time and give of their energy, and, and give me opportunities, people who have poured into me. To this day, I, I have mentors who, they're far ahead of me in ministry. And, and, and I, I sometimes think, these guys have no business wasting their time on me. <laughs> but I want to be a worthy investment. I want to take what they're pouring into me. That's what I think that's a biblical thing. We should honor those who have poured into us. How do we honor them? We honor them by being a worthy and fruitful investment. We take it to heart. We take what they have given us. We take it seriously and we do something with it. Then number five, rejoice and thank God for those who have suffered to serve you in your faith. This is sort of tied into number four, but it's different. It's It's distinct. Paul, facing the prospect of execution, wants them not to be sad that he might soon die, that this might be the last time they hear from him, but he wants them to rejoice and thank God that he has had the opportunity to suffer in the service of their faith. That's a really cool perspective. He says in verses 17 and 18, this this will end our passage, but even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, in other words, even if I die here, if I'm executed here as a result of this imprisonment, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. What a beautiful perspective that we don't have to be sad when people die in faithful service to Christ, but that we can rejoice, knowing that they suffered to serve us, that we might grow in our faith. I can think of several examples, you know, as a pastor, I've had opportunities to to be bedside many times when people were at the end of life. And I remember um, one of the fir- when, when I was real early in ministry, there was an, an elderly lady who had just been a huge blessing to Kim and I, um, both individually. She was there when our relationship was just forming. In fact, when she was in the hospital for the last time, I had the privilege of telling her that Kim and I were about to go on our first date. And she was so excited because she knew us both and she wanted to see us come together. Um, But I remember as she was dying, one time I I was just sitting there with her at her bedside and not really to me, just kind of looking off into the room and there was nobody else in there. She just said, I have to be strong. And I knew at that moment, she was serving me in my faith. That she wanted to die well for my sake and for the sake of those who are watching. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, even if, even if this ends in death for me, if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad. We should, one, both, one, we need to strive to have that perspective. What if I die before I should? What if I die not of old age, but of something that most would consider a tragedy? How might God use that to serve others in the faith? How might God use that as a sacrificial service of their faith? That's worth contemplating. That's worth thinking about. But also, we should have this perspective. This is the other way we need to approach this is when people die faithfully serving Christ, that is a service to my faith. That is to strengthen me. I think of several examples Uh, a couple years ago. A friend friend of mine uh, from my previous church who was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, I think he lived about six weeks. I can't remember for sure. Died an extremely painful death. And I remember being at his bedside the night before he died. Kim and I went and visited him. And he was, he was internally hemorrhaging. And they were just giving him blood and just giving him blood. I think they gave him like 20 units of blood over the course of a few hours. He was in bad shape. And I remember him wanting to know how Kim and I were doing when we came and visited him. That's what it means to die Faithfully not necessarily that you die on your own terms but that up to the end you faithfully serve Christ one of one of my mentors and professors in Bible college who have stayed in touch with since then was recently recently diagnosed with early onset parkinsons and this this man more than any other man in ministry has made an incredible impact on me from the time I was young, I came to Bible college. I didn't. I had a couple of godly men in my life um, who I would say by their example were teaching me, but none of them were actively pouring into me. This was the first man who was living a godly life who just actively and atten- intentionally poured into me. And we've, we've stayed in contact ever since. And now he's, I think, 52 or 54, and his Parkinson's is sort of ramping up. And I said to him, we call him PD for Pastor Darren. Um, I said, PD, you taught so many of us how to live for Christ in strength. And now you, you have the opportunity to teach us how to live for Christ in weakness. And I said, I just really want to be a part of this season of your life. And so I asked him if I could, he lives in Columbia, South Carolina. I asked him if I could come visit him this fall. So I'm looking forward to that. But here's a man who, he's my Paul. He's the one who's, who's showing me how to live for Christ in weakness and through suffering. And, and I'm sad by that, but I also rejoice in that. Just like Paul wants the Philippians to do, we need to do the same. He says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. That's his perspective. But then he says, this is the perspective we should have. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me and I'll tell you it's worth building relationships with folks who are spiritually further down the road than you but also in terms of years and in age further down the road for you because there's an opportunity there if you don't have those relationships there's an opportunity that you'll miss to learn how to live well in that next season of your life but rejoice And thank God for those who have suffered to serve you in your faith. So how about you? Can you name some people? Can you think of some folks that you can just thank God for their lives? Because even in their suffering, they served your faith. They served to strengthen you. They didn't serve themselves. They served you through their suffering. If so, rejoice in those. All right, in conclusion, let me just summarize real quick. All of this begins with that prodding of don't coast. There's so much opportunity to, to work out your salvation. If I, didn't, if I didn't give you anything that you can take away and say I need to grow in that or I can apply that, then, then I, I don't know what happened here this morning because I think this passage is full of things that we need to strive to apply. So don't coast. There's too much work to be done in you and there's too much work that needs to be done through you. Strive to be blameless and pure. Don't set the bar so low in your life. But set the bar higher. Say, I'm a a child of God, and because of that, I have a responsibility to live up to the family name. Shine bright in this dark generation by holding firm to the word of life. And then finally, in relationship to those who have served your faith, honor them. Honor them by being a worthy and fruitful investment and rejoice even when they have to suffer, knowing that God is strengthening the faith of many. Let's pray. Jesus, your word gives us so much to think about, so much to apply in terms of working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. we We do have a lot of work to do. But it's not us working, it's you working in us. And so we enter into that work with you. Help us to be worthy and fruitful investments of those who have poured into us by refusing to coast, but pressing on toward the prize, pressing on toward maturity in Christ. God, if there be any among us here this morning who just haven't even begun that journey by putting their faith in Christ, God, I thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross in our place so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could gain eternal life. And perhaps this morning, God, you're drawing somebody to receive the gift of salvation. So I pray that right now you would cause them to believe and to have faith. And God, that you would take away their sins And in exchange, give them new life, new life in Christ. Make them children of God in our family. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.